Hello, you're listening to Yarns from the Plain, a podcast for knitters, crocheters, and anyone who loves to play with yarn. Hello and welcome to episode 14. How are you? I'm okay. I've had an interesting couple of weeks since I spoke to you last. Um, it's the holidays, so of course with that gorgeous hot weather we had in June, yeah, now, now it's August. It's raining. It's rained nearly every day since the host pipe band came in on the 9th of July. And ooh, Wednesday of this week, it sunk to as low as 14 degrees Celsius, which I know, you know, it's just far more like winter. I had to resist the urge to put the fire on. I certainly did reach for a woolly. Oh, it's a good thing to be a knitter these days in those cold weathers when you can sit there with a nice warm clappity on your lap. And uh, talking of clappity, guess what? I finished it. It's gorgeous. Um, I did. Uh, only five repeats on the increase rows where uh, the pattern says seven, but then I did 19 repeats instead of 13 in the straight section. So my clapperty has ended up being uh, about 18 inches wide, but about 80 inches long, which um, bear in mind that I'm only five foot seven, which is uh, by my reckoning, what, uh, 60, uh, 67 inches tall? Mm, yeah, it's it's quite long it goes substantially around my neck loosely um but then could go around my neck twice if i wanted but it's finished it's beautiful it was knitted in the uh, manas del uruguay silk blend that i bought down in uh, i knit in london in june and it's finished in time for the clapper tea party which is the first social event at knit camp next week i am so excited about this i just can't I really can't tell you. Um, part of it is sort of balanced with, you know, irritation that um, all of my original tutors have now um, cancelled. But actually, I'm going to go and spend a week at a lovely location. I was chatting to my dentist about it this week, and he did a, a conference up at the management centre at the University of Stirling a couple of weeks ago, and he says it is truly beautiful. There's a fantastic swimming pool. I'm going to have a trip out to Loch Katrine, which has got to be one of the most beautiful locks in Scotland, um, I'm going to get to knit and spin and not think about housework or cooking or anything else for a week. I'm going to get a chance to meet Jess and Casey and just have a brilliant time. What is not to like? I'm just so excited that it's just uh, it's just amazing. Um, so, I've got that already. It doesn't go with the dress, of course, like I said, but I may just wear a different dress. Um, I've kind of rooted out a kind of brownie, uh, a blacky grey one, which might work. So, that's come off my needles this week. Um, what else? Oh, spinning. I've uh, gone back to the spinning wheel. And I have taught myself how to Navajo ply. How fantastic is that? Um, I'm really quite pleased with it, actually. Although, looking at the... Uh, at the first bit I Navajo plied, which was the last part that I'd spun, compared to the last bit I plied, which was the first bit I'd spun on that long um, piece that I'd bought from Wonderwall Wales 
um, do you remember it? I don't know what it is. I think from the feel of it, it could be BFL and Tencel. Um, the spinning was better towards the end and was much more even. It's a bit, little bit lumpy um, near the start, but um, I'm very pleased with it. So I think what I'm going to do is it's hanging up drying at the moment. I think I'm going to make um, quite a thin lace scarf um, from it that's just going to show all the colour changes off. Um, but it's been a very productive week here. I haven't done the ironing, but, um, well, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, isn't there? So, um, so I've been knitting on the clappity, um, finished that. I've knitted a few um, squares towards blanket swaps, um, spun, spun, spun. And at the minute, today, this morning, I started spinning um, a bat of fibre that I bought from um, an American, I think she's from Florida, um, indie dyer called Ever Improving Me. She's on Etsy and I'll put a link up on the show notes. Um, but it spins like bliss. It's beautiful. Uh, it was part of a spin, uh, spin along kit. Um, she does one every month that's themed and the July theme was the Muppets. So you could uh, choose your Muppet and she would dye you um, and card you the bats up. Um, the colours inspired by your Muppet of choice uh, and then got it all sent up in a parcel and there would be some goodies in there so there was a scented candle and some stitch markers and one of the stitch markers has got your Muppet's face on it. I chose Animal because I just love his drumming really and um, the bats are beautiful, they're sort of oranges predominantly but with those yellows carded in there, bright pinks, um, little bits of black from his eyebrows and they're just beautiful and it's spinning like an absolute dream. I've already spun, um, well, I suppose about an ounce because it's it's coming in two ounce um, bats. And I've spun half of one bat, well, over half of one bat. It's just delicious. I was kind of hoping that I might be able to spin something around about 19 wraps per inch that when I did it in a three-ply would come out into a nice worsted weight and uh, ish. And, um, of course, that's not happening because it's this is animal. And... He is an animal, and it's coming out with thicks and thins, and there's silk noil in there as well, so that's giving bobbly bits with some texture. Uh, but actually, I've decided I don't care. I don't care that it's thick and thin, and it's going to be a bit lumpy. Um, I'm quite tempted, depending on how I ply it, whether I do a three-ply or whether I, I do some more. Um, I found a pattern on Nitty, in the Nitty spin section, called Lauren, which is for a, a plain cardigan. Um, Gillian Moreno, I think Moreno is the um, designer, and she used um, a plum, plummy navy blue kind of colour. And it's a relatively plain jacket, but then you use hand spun for a big shawl collar and your cuffs and the front edge of the jacket. And she also put some on, like an extra bum flap at the back. Um, so I'm thinking that maybe that would be a really nice use for it if I had a sort of a, a neutral colour jacket and then this, you know loud shawl in front of it and it looks really really nice so but that's going to depend on how it comes up um, when I apply it but it's just oh it's the bees knees to spin it's beautiful so that's uh, that's all the fiber action that's been going on here this week um, and uh, the, the rest of the show is really going to be taken up with um, some audio from um, the tame show um, 
So before I introduce that, though, there's just a couple of things that I want to mention. Um, it is UK Knit Camp next week. I am going to take my voice recorder, but I am also going um, as a student. So I don't know how much audio I'll record. Um, so it may be sort of outtakes along the lines of the ones that Dr. Gemma does in Stitches West, where she just wanders around um, chatting to people. I need to get over my sort of natural shyness, I think. <laughs> but, you know, you feel a bit of a prat wandering around thrusting a, a voice recorder under somebody's nose. So I need to kind of get over that if I'm going to do uh, anything like that. But, you know, I'm sure I can um, get some audio from that. Um, there's iNIT coming up in September, of course, the iNIT Weekender. I think it's, it's the weekend with the 11th of September in. I think it's the 10th and 11th. Um, Fibre Flurry coming up in October. I haven't found any more details out about that from when I spoke to you last time. Um, but I also want to direct you um, to something. So I am going to put this in as the something I really like section. Although that's uh, it's not something I often listen to. But you can find some gems on BBC Radio 4. Um, it is the only radio station that ever addresses anything to do with farming um, and it does have regular um, farming programs and uh, one of the series of programs it runs is called Open Country and yesterday um, afternoon the show that was broadcast Saturday morning was repeated and it was a really interesting um, program from Fair Isle um, and it was discussing the fact that the funding to teach knitting in the primary school curriculum has been cut and so the um, reporter uh, whose name is escapes me now that's it Moira Hickey um, is actually she was up there um, interviewing a, a variety of people about the heritage of knitting within um, the Fair Isle uh, within Fair Isle itself um, and um, sort of interviewing some of the children. So I, I can't find on the website um, how long this program is available for. But when I was listening to it um, on my phone, um, this lunchtime goes sounds so cheesy, doesn't it? But I was in Costa and I thought I'd listen to it. Um, it said it was available for something like 145 days, which by my reckoning um, is possibly about five months. Um, but I'll put a link up to it in the show notes if you get a chance. It's about 27 minutes and it's just a really interesting program um, to, you know, I'll, I'll read here what's, uh, what's the, the little write-up from the show. Moira Hickey visits Fair Isle, famous around the world for its knitting. With a plentiful supply of wool from the island's hardy Shetland sheep, knitting kept many families from starvation and the craft is still economically important for Fair Isle. Yet with Shetland schools soon to drop knitting from the curriculum, can it survive for much longer? Will Shetland children still learn to knit? And if they don't, will it really matter? Moira Hickey visits Fair Isle to look at the importance of knitting to the islanders and to ask what the future holds for this traditional craft. So, so this is something I really like this week, is the, the opportunity to go and explore programmes on... Um, BBC Radio 4, the interesting documentaries they do, but particularly through the fact that I can listen to them at my convenience through the iPlayer. And I would, really would urge you to go and have a little look. There are some really interesting programmes um, 
that they put together. It, it's fantastic. I know that uh, some people are, are very envious of uh, BBC Radio 4, and I think it's fantastic. It is really good. I don't listen to it much, but what I do listen to is very, very high quality. So, as I mentioned, the rest of this programme is going to be taken up with audio that I recorded at the weekend when I went to the Oxfordshire County and Tame show. Um, I thought before I played the audio though I'd give you a little bit of a background. Um, I obviously know nothing about county fairs um, or agricultural shows in other countries and I have to say my knowledge of the agricultural show in Britain is fairly restricted. To my shame I have to say that the Tame show is the only agricultural show that I've ever attended. Um, I have grand plans of always attending the Royal Welsh Show, but unfortunately it's always coincides um, with the last few days of term, so I'm never free for it, um, with the possible exception of scrabbling up for the very last day. And the Royal Agricultural Show itself, which was the key English agricultural show, um, unfortunately met its demise last year. Um, I can't go to the Cheshire show because that's on a Tuesday and a Wednesday in June and unless I were actually to take my children um, on a school trip which would be difficult to do without having done a risk assessment and I couldn't do a risk assessment because I can't get there because it's in term time and actually the idea of taking uh, a class of seven and eight year olds um, however well behaved mine are to an agricultural show when I don't know anything about the layout um, just gives me the absolute willies. Um, so my knowledge of agricultural shows is very limited and I actually haven't attended the Tame show since 1994 but it was a fixture of my childhood and my early um, adulthood even when I was living in Cumbria 300 miles away I would do what I could to make sure I was home around about that time to be able to attend the show always um, a family gathering that we went to and in my granddad's later years, um, he took a great deal of comfort, I think, from attending. He was um, in varying degrees of Alzheimer's and wasn't always aware of where he was or what was happening around him. But he was always comforted, I think, by the familiarity of the show, um, having grown up um, on a farm himself. I think he, he found it a comforting um, situation. So what I thought I would do is I would give you a little bit of history um, behind the Tame show um, and then put it into a little bit of context um, now because that will make sense of some of the comments that you'll hear me make during the audio. Um, so the, the first official show um, of the Tame Agricultural Association was actually held in October of 1888, but its origins predated um, that by at least 30 years. Um, it all started um, with um, some farmers and a um, representative of a plough-making company um, deciding to hold a ploughing match. Um, and on Thursday the 25th of October in 1855 the first ploughing match of Tame took place. It was a huge success, 26 teams um, competed for 8 prizes and it, it was such a success that it was decided that it would be a good idea um, for it to become a perpetual event but for it to combine with the Horticultural Society show that had been running for some 8 years. 
Um, so in 1855, the Tame Agricultural and Horticultural Society was formed. This later became the Tame Agricultural Association and the show became the Tame Show. And it grew from those humble beginnings um, to include competitive classes for cattle, sheep, dogs, horses, um, domestic produce, so that includes um, your fruit, your vegetables, floral displays, um, cooking classes, jams, chutneys, handicrafts and art. Um, and the, the, there are still, there's, there's certainly qualification um, or classification for um, acreage. So what that means is there are classes for um, the best entry in the 10 acres of winter wheat or 10 acres of winter barley. Um, so they, it sort of developed through like that. When I was a child, um, I remember there being a great deal of animals. Um, I don't know if that was simply because I was small and therefore when you're small, a cow looks big and one cow possibly in your head um, keeps the sort of same idea of, of maybe what three cows do. Um, when you're an adult, I don't know. Um, but certainly there were a great deal there. And the domestic animals also included um, rabbits, um, pigeons and caged birds. The centre arena um, includes horse riding, um, you know, show jumping. Um, and we've had some of the best um, show jumpers in the country taking part in the events in past years. Um, it also provides a space for... Um, demonstrations of country pursuits. Um, so when I was a child, the um, hunt and the hounds would always be there. Um, obviously, fox hunting is now um, banned in England, um, but not all hunts have been disbanded. Um, it can be a little dicey. They are not supposed to hunt foxes. Um, but obviously, rather than put down the hounds and the horses, um, a, a number of hunts have decided that they'd go out and lay um, aniseed trails for the dogs uh, and go and exercise the dogs. Whether the dogs follow a fox trail if they find it and how they could stop them killing it, I don't know. Um, fox hunting is a contentious issue in this country and me being um, what somebody would term a wishy-washy liberal, of course I can see both sides of the, the argument, um, it seems very cruel to um, chase a fox to its death um, and have it ripped apart by hounds but I've also seen the mess made by a fox in a chicken house um, and that's quite horrific um, especially when they will kill all the animals but maybe only eat two um, and you know if you're going to control a fox population you know it's very difficult to do it with poison because you could poison anything else um, you have to be a very good shot to be able to kill a fox outright with one gunshot uh, and not injure it and cause it a great deal of pain and suffering so you know it's a contentious issue but they were always there when I was a child. There would also be military displays um, in the main arena um, so you'd sometimes have um, the Red Devils which would be the RAF parachute team um, somebody would land in the main arena um, being dropped out of a plane um, or they'd have the White Helmets which was the motorcycle display team um, so all sorts of um, things were on display. In the past I've seen dog agility classes there um, 
axemen, which are you know demonstration teams of how fast you can chop down trees and things. Um, so a great day out for all the family. And certainly its tagline when I was a child was it was the greatest one day show in the country. So it was the largest one day show because a lot of county shows um, do last for two days and the Royal Welsh lasts for four. In 2006, um, it actually absorbed the Oxfordshire County show. Um, the Oxfordshire Agricultural Society um, sort of became the Ag Oxfordshire Agricultural Society Trust and um, it, it sort of was amalgamated so it should or it used to be called the Tame and Oxfordshire County Show. Um, this year I noticed it was the Oxfordshire County and Tame Show, but everyone still calls it the Tame Show. Um, and for time immemorial, it's been, you know, well, maybe not time immemorial because the first ones were in October, but certainly um, in my parents' lifetime and beyond that, um, it has always been held on the third Thursday of September. This was a day um, all the schools in the town would shut, so all the children could go to the show. Um, and it was a brilliant day. It was really, really good. But over the last few years, like many agricultural shows, um, it's been struggling to pay its way. And so a decision was made this year to try and move it to a Saturday um, to see if they could get more people to come. They couldn't move it to the Saturday either side of the original date in September because it then clashes with other shows um, in the local area. And obviously people, there, there tends to be a circuit where a lot of the traders um, who sell things like wax jackets, leather goods, um, Wellington boots, things like that, move around the circuit of shows. Um, so they settled on the last Saturday in July um, for this. Now, part of me... Um, the traditionalist part of me is very grumpy about this. Tame Show is the third Thursday of September. It ties in with the travelling fair that comes and takes over the entire high street of the town and causes chaos. Um, but you went to the show and then you went to the fair. Um, the show without the fair, and the fair indeed as it will come in September without the show, um, seems very odd. But um, this is how it is. The other part of me that hasn't been able to attend Tame Show since I've been in teaching was sort of silently going, oh, yippee, yes, hurrah, I'll be able to go. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a typical sit on the fence here. I can see both sides again. Um, unfortunately, I do think that going for the last weekend in July when most schools finish in that third week um, has meant that there are people away. Um, I know of people who were away that that would ordinarily go or take part, um, but were on holiday. But uh, so that's you know a risk they have to take. I hope it pays off for them. Um, I don't know if and when we'll find out whether it has or not. Um, but I hope it does. So Saturday, the thirty-first of July, saw me arriving at the show ground at about 20 past 25 past six in the morning um yes uh, i was a bit bleary eyed um my mum and dad have for the last uh, number of years been involved in stewarding in the domestic tent uh, mum is responsible for 
um, the organisation of the children's art section. So she chooses the um, title of the theme, which this year was the fairground. Um, she makes sure that the judge is still able to judge the entries. She makes sure the schedule is correct. Uh, and then she's there on the Friday night to set up, well, on the Wednesday night normally, but on the Friday night this year, to set up the display areas and on the morning of the show, before judging starts, to take uh, all the entries in and arrange them and display them. Um, there was a family wedding this year, which mum was really you know, keen to attend, so I said that I would step in and do her um, stewarding duties. So that found me at uh, 20 past six in the domestic tent um, after a, a run of a week of gorgeous weather with it absolutely honking it down with rain. Um, so, you know, we were a little worried about it, but actually it did dry up nicely. The next uh, few clips um, are from the domestic tent. So it's uh, five to seven on the morning of Saturday the 31st of July, and I'm here inside the domestic tent um, before the show starts, waiting to uh, accept all the entries for the children's arts competition, um, which sadly have down from previous years, but then uh, talking to many of the stewards, many of the classes are down from previous years, probably because having now moved it to the last Saturday in July, lots of people are on holiday, whereas it used to be the third Thursday in September, so people would be around. However, the showground is stirring to life. Something heavy is being rolled outside the tent uh, as I speak, and um, the, the showground's coming to life. This tent won't be open to the members of the public until 10 o'clock, until after judging, but I can't see it's going to take that long to judge it this year, which is a tragic shame, um, but never mind. I had a little look over at the handicraft section when I was here last night, and uh, there was just one crochet item and one knitted item, and uh, one piece of embroidery submitted at that point. I can see now a few more entries have come in um, in the period of time. Um, there are three fibre classes. Um, there's a knitting class, a baby and toddler knitting class, and a crochet class. Um, and then I think the other classes are, um, now I can't remember, I could be speaking wrong, but I would say patchwork, embroidery. I think there could be a lace or tatting class. And then there's a general handicrafts class, which is sort of anything that doesn't fit any of the other classes, really. Um, in terms of the knitting, um, so far, all I can see are entries in the baby and toddler knitting, which are kind of predictable um, pinks and blues in um, acrylic with sort of lacy patterns. So very traditional baby garments that wouldn't have looked out of place on me for, you know, 40 years ago, or indeed on my mum, probably 70 years ago. So we're now in the last few minutes before the public um, are allowed into the domestic tent. The judging is over in nearly all of the categories. I think it's just, just the chocolate cake um, that's uh, still to be judged. So they're busy sort of cutting and sampling those at the moment. I'm stood here in front of the knitting class, class 110. Um, there are three entries in this. Uh, first prize has been won by a very nice um, cream feather and fan pattern shawl. Um, rectangular shawl but obviously with a scalloped edge from the feather and fan. So it's very nice, um, very even, ex 
executed a nice even edge um, and very nice. Second prize has been won by a pair of gloves with um, a similar, it looks like a feather and fan wrist pattern. Um, and they are, have been knitted in a variegated yarn, look very nice, very cosy. And then highly, uh, very highly commended has been awarded to a yellow bolero um, with some interesting stitch texture pattern. Um, it's not particularly to my taste, but um, it's very evenly knitted, um, although it's slightly heavy weight for what is essentially a shrug or a bolero. Um, class 111 is the baby and toddler knitting. Um, so we've got four entries in here. Um, that's, this has been won by a little matinee set, which is absolutely beautiful. Little booties. Um, oh no, probably gloves actually, rather than booties. Hat and a little matinee jacket. Very, very finely knitted um, in white. Um, and then we've also got um, a baby dress and a little baby jacket. And then um, a cable jacket for a toddler. Um, in a nice purple yarn, um, which I like that, that one's second prize. Um, so again, in this class, no third prize has been awarded. It's been first prize, second prize, and two very highly commended. And then uh, in the crochet class, there's a beautiful um, crochet shawl. It's in white. It's very simple. Um, done in a slightly fluffy yarn which um, you know I know with a fine crochet hook when the fluff is a bit difficult to keep the tension in beautifully tensioned um, beautiful it, it would be used as a christening shawl I think it would be lovely um, but it is the only entry in the crochet section so obviously I've lost my chance here I could have possibly clinched second if I'd entered something this year um, however it is such a beautiful piece it has been awarded the diploma for the best exhibit in the handicraft section um, and the other contender that I know um, was in for that was, it was closely fought was between that and the winner of the patchwork um, category which is just beautiful as well um, it's a lovely lovely piece um, and the, the note pinned on it actually says it's a the exhibitor's very first quilt well if that's the very first quilt goodness me when they are experienced their work is going to be beautiful I mean this is already beautiful it is lovely um, we've also in this section got um, cross stitch and tapestry and some very nice pieces here all of the pieces here very nice um, and then a general any other item of craft so we've got some little toys um, a mosaic um, some folded fabric into a little kimono um, so it's you know very nice things so obviously when I get my arse into gear next year and decide to uh, enter some handspun this will be the class I'll enter my handspun yarn into um, it's probably not going to win compared to you know a beautiful big piece of mosaic based on William Morris but you know it's all for a, a bit of a laugh isn't it and it would be a shame um, to see the the entries this down again because there's you know there's only one entry in the freestyle hand embroidery section only one entry in the crochet and only seven entries do together across the two knitting classes so you know we need to do something to enliven it because I have to say the examples that you see in the 
the knitting section. There's nothing, I mean, it's only the, the gloves that really go, ooh. I mean, the feather and fan shawl is beautiful, but it's just not, it doesn't sing modern knitting, really. Um, it's very traditional. It could just have easily gone in the baby section as a baby shawl. Um, so, you know, we need uh, something a bit more jazzy. So maybe I should have put my narrow stripes jumper in after all. But there we are, never mind. Anyway, um, that's it from the domestic tent. Um, I'm now going to go out and about and see what I can see over in the animal section. Bye! Once I was out of the domestic tent, I headed around to have an explore. Um, went to go and have a look at various animals. Um, actually saw something brilliant, which I've tried to take um, a video of, and I will see if I can post it up on the site um, with the show notes. Um, the sound quality isn't very good, but it was the sheep show. Um, a fantastic um, show on the back of a lorry featuring nine amazing breeds of sheep and lots and lots and lots of information. Um, it was uh, introduced by Craig, a New Zealander, who um, is obviously a shearer and um, has been working with sheep probably for most of his life. Um, and it was just really, really interesting about the evolution of different sheep breeds within Britain and um, some interesting information on um, why particular breeds um, do so well. So it mentioned um, the Norfolk, which is one of the, the sort of staple breeds in the medieval times. Um, then the Southdown, which is a short, stocky breed, but very good um, fat breed. Norfolk was um, both a wool and um, a meat breed, but um, quite slow growing. Uh, from the Norfolk and the uh, Southdown, um, the cross came for the Suffolk, which was a really good um, breed of sheep. Um, then went on and he introduced um, the blue-faced Leicester, um, uh, a Scottish blackface, um, which he then went on and sheared some Scottish blackface during the day, um, which was quite interesting because he said he never sheared any of those before, so he was kind of learning as he went along. They're a bit of a feisty breed. Um, we also um, were introduced to a mule, which is not a cross between a horse and a donkey in this case, but actually a, a cross between um, a blue-faced Leicester and a Scottish blackface. Um, and then there were also a couple of European breeds there as well. Oh, there was a lovely Lincolnshire Longwall. Um, and I'll see if I can get um, photos of these up on the show notes, but it was uh, a lovely Lenny, the Lincolnshire Longwall. Um, very laid-back kind of guy. And a couple of European breeds, the Texel and uh, Rouge de la West. Um, so it was a really interesting, um, and like I say, I videoed it, but I don't know how well um, that will show up. So I'll, I'll see if I can post that up, but if it if I can't tidy the sound quality up too much, then I do apologise for that. Um, but it was uh, it was really, really interesting. So I wandered around um, the marquees with um, animals in, um, strolled up to the sheep and the cows, and uh, couldn't find a carcass tent, but I don't think there's been a carcass tent um, since um, the advent of BSC in the late 90s. Um, that's probably when it was pulled um, from the show and has never been resurrected but that was uh, that used to be something that was used to fascinate me as a child wandering around the uh, wandering around the carcass tent looking at these great hunks of meat hung up um, 
each little piece um, I'll separate with um, an animal noise <laughs> of some kind or another um, just so that there's a, a little bit of um, mixing and blending it's not as well edited as other people's podcasts but hey this is me um, so I hope you you enjoy it um, I think pretty much from uh, my memory I think we'll be touring around the rabbits the pigeons the cage birds uh, cattle sheep uh, alpaca and dogs so enjoy so here I am in the rabbit section um, this is one of my favorite sections when I was a child I absolutely adored coming here I always had the, the vague hope that I would uh, be able to get a rabbit strange thing was about the, the house that my parents live in is that there's a, a bylaw that says that we can in the property we can keep up to 12 chickens but we can't keep a rabbit now, I would have thought 12 chickens would have made a damn sight more noise, smell and uh, general nuisance than one rabbit. And seeing the size of the back garden, they'd have to be incredibly small chickens um, to actually fit in there. But uh, those, them, those are the local bylaws and uh, as such, my uh, mum and dad used those to full effect to avoid getting me a rabbit. I now know myself well enough to know that actually I'd probably be a bit useless with a rabbit because it's going to stay in the hutch and not tell me it needs feeding. And I'm probably much safer with cats because they will actually come and let me know that they need to be fed. I'm just, uh, you know, I, I get a bit wrapped up in my work and my knitting and unless they come and tell me, I'm probably going to have a bit of a problem. But uh, here they are, looking as beautiful as ever. So I'm uh, in front of the little, the ones that look, uh, I think this is the... Uh, Angora section, not Angora, what am I saying? These are the, the probably the albino sections, they're all white with pink eyes and very tiny ears, um, not like my favourites, the lops and the beautiful little Dutch. Um, but uh, he's a lovely Netherlands dwarf here with very cute ears. Um, but interestingly enough, there's no, no signs on them. When I was a child, there were always signs on them for those that were for sale. But they don't appear to be for sale anymore. There also don't appear to be as many rabbits as I remember when I was a child. But that could just be that when you're on an eye level with the rabbits, they look a lot bigger and they look like there's a lot more of them than there are now. Isn't it strange how your memory distorts things when you grow up? Anyway, that's it from the rabbits for now. I'm now into the cage bird section and I'm here um, with all the pigeons. They're all having a bit of a preen. Um, the, uh, this section is for both um, flying and show pigeons. Um, not quite, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, like anything else, there'll be a breed standard. Um, and the pigeons will go for them. Some of them are a motley looking crew, I have to say, and there's one there with a very funny looking beak, but I suspect that that is the breed standard, otherwise he wouldn't be allowed. It does look like he's got some sort of fungal growth on them. Um, some of them look like they've just come straight off Trafalgar Square, which I'm sure they probably haven't. Um, but uh, they're an interesting little section. Some of these little ones are very tiny though. Some of these more the racing pigeons, I suppose. Um, it's never a great thing. My, my uh, granddad from Yorkshire used to be interested in pigeons, apparently, but um, I'm not. I'm not over fond. 
Um, but, uh, you know, each to his own. But some of those ones at the top here are really quite big, size of a small chicken. So, oh, here we are, the West of England Flying Tumbler, a very popular and free-breeding variety available in many colours. So, further down, um, I think we've got smaller cage birds further down, but uh, I shall uh, investigate further. Ah, now here we are further down, and as you can tell, I've hit the budgerigar section. Now, I used to have a budgie when I was a child, so I have a bit of a, a fondness for them. Uh, my husband really doesn't like cage birds at all, but I have to say I can see me as an old lady with two cats and a budgie. Um, you know, one of those slightly strange old ladies that, you know, doesn't speak to enough humans, probably. But anyway, there are some truly beautiful budgies here with some markings that I've never seen before. Some, um, some of the yellow and green ones almost look like they've been um, dyed with procyon dyes. They're so bright. Um, their colours are so vivid. Um, I'll just see if I can catch a, a picture. It probably won't come out anywhere near as uh, clearly, but... They just do look quite magnificent. Um, in terms of their, their brightness. I can't really remember what colour our budgie was. I think it was a, a grey-green uh, and yellow budgie, from uh, what I remember. Um, I only found out quite recently that actually he, uh, he died when um, he inadvertently let the dog in when he was out of his cage and the, the dog tried to get a bit friendly with the budgie. I'm not quite sure whether he was actually savaged by the dog or whether the poor thing just died of fright, but um, he, was, uh, he was one off the fair. We called him Brian. Um, named after the young lad from Wales who'd won him off the fair and then promptly said, can't take this home to me, mother. Can you look after it? So um, it's uh, quite an interesting uh, experience keeping the budgie, especially when you have cats and dogs. It uh, does require a bit of manipulation. Now here, we're down here, these look like um, chaffinches. These are finches of some sort. So there's a, something that definitely looks like a um, goldfinch. And that looks like a chaffinch from my garden. So, um, yes, you definitely look like a goldfinch. Now they look quite annoyed about being in a cage, which is, uh, you know, this is the bit where my mum would get really quite upset, I think. Um, Starfinch here. Beautiful birds, there they are. Some beautiful, beautiful finches. Um, I don't quite know why I'm more unsettled by seeing ones that I should see in the garden um, in a cage than any of the others in a cage, because surely, you know, they're all designed to be free, aren't they? They're not bred to be in cages. Um, walking around here now, we've got the... These look a little bit, I suppose, more like parakeets or cockatiels. And, uh, oh, a beautiful red-crested, uh, red-chested sunbird. He's beautiful. He looks almost like a hummingbird. Um, he's won a special prize. And then we come down this other side here and we seem to have got the canaries. Now, we also had a canary when I was a child, um, rescued from the jaws of our cat. She, was, uh, she had it in her sights in a neighbour's garden and we, we don't know where he came from. So uh, we rescued him and put him in the cage with the budgie. Um, we had a strange collection of animals when I was a child. Um, but yeah, lots of... Oh, this is an almost white. Um, 
presumably these are still canaries. Um, but uh, not as many of them as I remember from when I was a child. But then perhaps it, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just not as popular. It always struck me as an old man's um, hobby, keeping birds like this. And, you know, once the old men of my, of my youth have gone, who takes over of uh, that role? I don't know. <laughs> so there are some beautiful ones, but I think I'm happier seeing them in a large aviary than in a small cage. But, uh, but there we are. So that's it for the, the caged birds. There is another row of pigeons, but I think I'm not going to uh, describe those to you. So I'm here in the cattle tent, um, as you can hear. Um, we've got uh, a section of food. We've got uh, some Holsteins, which are milkers, and some Herefords, which are a good beef breed, and some South Devons, best, uh, biggest breeds we do here in the UK, the South Devon. Big, big thing. Lovely. I um, saw some judging of that earlier. Um, we've got some Abenine Angus and um, some, I think that's more, yeah, more South Devons over there. Um, there is a class apparently for um, some uh, Europeans such as Charolais and Belgian Blue, but I can't see them here. They've obviously got a different arrangements from when I was here last. When I was here last, you could go up and down amongst all the pens. Um, a part of uh, the um, Department of uh, Food and Agricultural um, restrictions now to not let the um, general public get so close so that they can't uh, transfer um, infections such as foot and mouth and blue tongue. Um, and also, obviously, now we've got a, a problem here in Great Britain with TB. Um, and with, ca with herds carrying TB, so they're obviously trying to reduce all incidences of that. Um, uh, to my mind, from where I was here last, there's not as many as cattle as uh, there used to be, but that may just be, again, the fact that I've not been here in 16 years, so it's very difficult really to remember what was here. Um, but certainly when I was here last, the sheep were in a tent of their own, and they're not now they're actually outside um, and I can't find any goats at all um, but I know mum said from within the last 10 years um, there has been a reduction in the amount of livestock simply due to the foot and mouth restrictions and then the blue tongue restrictions within the last few years so it may be that hopefully that that will um, be able to recover over the next few years Black and white 
now by the sheep pens and I'm uh, stood next to a very attractive South Down who uh, is having a good old sniff around the bags that I've got some feta cheese and olives in. Um, I hadn't realised until today really how small um, the, the South Down breed is. It really only does come up sort of mid-thigh on me. But they're a very chunky breed. Um, so, you know, sort of really good marble fat, beautiful meat. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say that within your hearing, should I? Sorry, sheep. Um, 
but they're gorgeous and they've actually got fleece all the way down their face which a lot of the breeds now these days haven't but they have they've got little fleecy faces and uh, they're just absolutely beautiful oh i'm absolutely in my element i've just looked up from the sheep and i've just spotted some alpaca how beautiful they've all been shorn and it looks like there's <gasps> there is there's a couple of kriya in here oh the little babies they're so beautiful okay uh, let me see this is great house alpaca oh and there's actually yarn on sale <gasps> fantastic yarn on sale from these alpaca i may i may not be able to resist you know me the yarn and the alpaca and i'm afraid to say i didn't resist well i did and i didn't i resisted buying a fleece um there she had a lot um, but the girl who'd packed it up had uh, inadvertently bought a lot of the baby which is very short um, staple so it's much more suitable for felting than it is for spinning um, but she had some of the last of her four ply yarn um, she's decided that she's no longer going to be sending it off for spinning into yarn um, the company that she uses won't do anything less than 10 kilos at a time um, of any one colour, which she's finding difficult um, to sell. So I took her last two balls of a gorgeous caramel four-ply and then two balls of cream four-ply. Um, so heaven knows what I'm going to do with 400 grams of four-ply because I just actually think thought it was 400 grams of DK, but um, it's not. It's four-ply. Four so, um, you know, look out for something lightweight and gorgeous and floaty um, with that. Um, I, I couldn't resist. I'm terribly sorry. I failed dismally. So I've uh, arrived at the dogs in time for the parade of all the best in breed and the best in show award. Now, uh, because of the... Um, Oh, I don't know, some kind of kennel club certification here and the only show of this quality in Oxfordshire. Um, all the best breeds winners qualify for next year's Crufts. Of course, it's quite a, a level of competitiveness here. Um, but there's a, a gorgeous selection of dogs in the uh, up for the best in show. And I honestly have no idea how you choose them. My personal favourites are a gorgeous blue roan cocker spaniel and a beautiful Burmese mountain dog. Um, but actually, the best in show ended up being a little papillon. One of those tiny little steppy dogs with lots of fluff that you can pop in a handbag. Um, but I must admit, they do trot out beautifully um, when you take them round the ring. Um, they've got a lovely gait to them. So that brings me to the end of the audio clips. The sirens in the background in that last section, um, it was about quarter past four, and it turned out to be a fire engine um, going to what I thought was quite a small fire in one of the car parks the the cars are parked on fields and as i had said it had been very very dry um in that area unlike in the northwest here where it's uh, been raining um it has been really dry down in the southeast um researching it later it turns out that actually it was more than just a little tiny fire uh, in a field and um i've seen different estimates and heard different estimates of how many cars were damaged um ranging from between 30 and um, 200 so um, it wasn't the car park that my car was on otherwise I might have been able to tell you more about it um, but having a quick scan on the local news website uh, it turns out that, um, that three 
fire engines had to attend and took them uh, between an hour and two hours to actually put out the fire in the field and then check everybody's car before people were allowed to drive off or indeed not as the case may be so nothing if not eventful the tame show anyway i hope you've enjoyed it i hope it's given you perhaps a little insight into what a british agricultural show can be like i didn't mention anything that happened in the uh, main arena I was just focusing more on the, the animal and uh, exhibition side of it. I hope you enjoyed it. Full details will be available in the show notes. And uh, I'll be back soon with hopefully some gossip from Nick Camp. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Yarns from the Plains. Show notes and links are available at the Yarns from the Plain show page at yarnsfromtheplain.podbean.com. If you'd like to contact the show, you can leave a comment over there on the show page, or you can email me at yarnsfromtheplain at googlemail.com, or message me on Ravelry, where I'm Tales from the Plain. Until next time, take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>